This morning, we continue in our study, We Believe. This morning and then next Sunday morning will actually be the last week um, in which we do the series, We Believe. Um, Earlier on in the series, we skipped the phrase about we believe in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. So that will become the text that we use for next Sunday as we celebrate Christmas. But this week, we find ourselves right at the very end of that creedal statement, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed as well as we've been using that. And so this morning as we get to that point in the creed, we get to confess together our belief in the church, our belief in the fellowship of the saints, and our belief in some of the most basic gifts that have been given to us as children of God. The church almost 2,000 years ago put this string of things right at the very end of the creed for a couple of reasons. The first reason being this, and it's pretty straightforward, we can't leave our confession of faith without talking about a few of these things. What we're going to confess and talk about this morning, these things are central to our faith. They're not tangential. They're not things that just sort of float along on the side and they're optional. They are essential to our faith. Remember, especially the Apostles' Creed is a condensation. It is, it is very short. Every word is chosen on purpose. Nothing inside of this creed is extra or an appendix or added on. So when we confess things like the church and the fellowship of the saints, these things are central to our faith. So we can't leave the creed without talking about these kinds of things. And secondly, they're all made possible, the things that we're going to talk about this morning, by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So this last clause, and you can see that on that bookmark we gave you and the banner that is out in the foyer, the last clause begins with the confession, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Then everything then that follows, we believe to be part of the work of the Holy Spirit, what he makes possible at work amongst us. So the presence of the Holy Spirit and his power with us is the very foundation of the church, what we do. The very foundation of the family of God, who we are together in Christ. He is the one who actually draws us into relationship with Jesus, making forgiveness and resurrection, and eternal life, and everything else with God possible. So today, here are the things that we're going to confess together. First of all, we confess that we believe in the church. What we mean by that is this. We believe in the importance of and the value of the church. We believe that the church is important to the life of every believer and to the life, by the way, of our larger community in the rest of the world. The church is salt and light for the world. So we believe in the importance of the church. And we believe the church is intended to preserve the teachings of God's word across the years and across every possible culture. So we believe in the church. We believe in the fellowship of the saints. We believe in the value of doing this Christian life with each other. Imperfect people gathered together, being changed by the grace of God. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have learned that the church is full of imperfect people, right? And the second you expect the church to be full of perfect people is the same second you start growing angry at the church. The fellowship of the saints is something unique and powerful. Gather together, being changed by the grace of God. 
We do not believe in doing this life alone. We do it with the fellowship of the saints. We're going to confess that we believe in forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body. We believe that God has done something for us that we do not deserve and that we never could earn, we never could in the future deserve if we behaved well enough or did enough good things. The sheer act of mercy by God is the forgiveness of our sins and he makes us his children. We understand that that forgiveness and resurrection is given to us because the Holy Spirit draws us into faith in Jesus Christ, makes salvation possible for us as he draws us to Jesus. And as the children of God, because of what's been given to us, we look forward to a resurrected eternity with Jesus. So the last thing we confess this morning is that we believe in life everlasting. Yes, when we say that, we really do mean eternal life with God after our physical death here on earth. But it turns out biblically that when we confess that we believe in the life everlasting, that we've also been given the opportunity to begin living in that life now. It is something that we can take hold of. It's something that we can live in. It's something that we can start tasting now. And there's going to come a day where the taste is going to become a feast, a perpetual feast of the glory of God. We believe in the life everlasting. So let's confess this together. It's the last clause of the Apostles' Creed. It's on the screen. It should be on those bookmarks as well. So let's say this together this morning. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2 Beginning in verse 18, here's how the Apostle Paul talks for a few verses about the church of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. For through him, and he's speaking of Jesus, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Through Jesus Christ, You and I have access by the presence and work of the Holy Spirit into the presence of God our Father. Notice again that kind of detail that Paul assumes in his text. We talked about it last time. The the work and the reality of the triune Godhead. What God the Father does, what God the Son does, what God the Holy Spirit does. And it's not just an esoteric thought or, or an interesting quirk in Christian theology. To you and me, it's something that we live in. So Paul says, look, you and I, through Jesus Christ and the presence of the Spirit, have been granted access to the Father himself. See, the Holy Spirit again, where we started this last clause of the creed, the Holy Spirit is this present reality that makes salvation 
and relationship with God and then with the body of Christ possible. So as far as Paul is concerned in this text, what is one of the results of the gift, the work of this triune Godhead amongst us? We, have be, we are becoming members of the household of God. Isn't that beautiful? We've been brought into his house. The image of the family of God is important when we talk about the church in the New Testament. We've been made the children of God. And by the work of his spirit, we've been brought into his house. And in fact, Paul tweaks the metaphor as this passage moved along. He said, so we're being brought into the household of God. And then he says, as a matter of fact, you are being built into the household of God. You and I, as the apostle Peter is going to say later on in one of his books, he says, you and I are like living stones filled with the Spirit of God and being put together. And God is making in us, making us into this holy temple to the Lord. So we're being made part of the church and we are becoming the church according to the work of the Spirit. When we talk about the church, when we say we believe in the church, or as the creed put it, the Holy Catholic Church, we're not talking about the building. I believe the church building exists. That's not what we're saying. We believe that there's a lot of buildings out there that are called churches. That's not what we're saying. The church building itself is not the church that we're talking about. The church that we're talking about meets inside of buildings sometimes. Does that make sense? It's not the building, but the church meets in the building. The church is not a denomination. We belong to the Assemblies of God denomination. There's a national version of it. There's an international version of it. And a denomination provides structure and accountability to individual local churches. But denominations like the Assemblies of God or the Southern Baptist Convention or the Roman Catholic Church, that's not the church. They help give structure to the local church, but that's not the church that we're talking about. The church is the gathered people of God. We believe in the church, in the value and in the importance of the gathered people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, being used by the Spirit of God. The church is the gathered people of God. Wherever the children of God are gathered together to pray, to fellowship, to worship, there we have the church of Jesus Christ. And wherever the church gathers, there the Spirit is in the midst of them. And we talked at length about that beautiful truth last week. When we gather, this place is filled with the presence of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the very foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. The way the creed is structured, the apostles and then the Nicene creed as well, the earliest sort of expansion on that first creed, the apostles' creed, the way it's built, it helps us understand the basic biblical structure of the church of Jesus Christ. And traditionally, there are four ways of understanding the church, and I want us to understand these things at least in their basic form. So first of all, the church is one. Wherever there are faithful followers of Jesus Christ, we have God's one church. 
So the church meets in many places. The church meets with all, kind, all kinds of different languages and in all kinds of different cultures. And the buildings look different and the landscape looks different and the culture looks different and the language sounds different. But we all agree on the fundamentals, on who Jesus is. And where that agreement is, we have the one church of God. So we agree on these fundamentals. We worship the same God. We have the same spirit. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? We have the same Savior. In fact, if you go back earlier on in Ephesians chapter 2, the context to what we just read is critical. He's saying all of us have been made one in the Spirit of God. And here's what Paul says before he gets to what you and I read beginning in verse 18. He recognizes the kinds of cultural and ethnic divisions that exist in their culture. A lot of those barriers between Jews and non-Jews, between men and women, between economic classes, a lot of those barriers were invisible barriers, but they were very real. They were hardwired into how they saw each other and treated each other, and even how close you could come to the temple itself. Only if you were one kind of person of one particular gender and one particular race could you actually come close into the temple of God. And the image is only they get really close to God's presence. So some of those barriers are invisible, they're conceptual. Some of those barriers are physical, they're literal walls and doors that you just cannot cross if you're of the wrong background. And Paul says, the first verse that we read, but in him, in Jesus Christ, all of us have been granted access by the Spirit to the Father himself. In Jesus Christ, every one of those barriers that we as human beings like to build between each other, in Jesus Christ, all of those barriers are gone. And in the fellowship of the church, every one of those barriers should be gone. Does that make sense? They exist out there. They should not exist here. And Paul likes to say this a lot to the churches in his epistles. At one point, he writes to the Galatian church. And in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28, this is how he puts it. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free there is no male and female, for you are all, are all one in Christ Jesus. Here, we are one in Jesus Christ. The church is one. The church is holy. When we confess that the church is holy, we believe it is holy because we're perfect. Just making sure you're still with me, right? We believe the church is holy not because, you know, there's some church out there where everybody is perfect and holy, or the staff or the pastors or a handful of special people who have been doing this for a long time have actually become perfect. That's not why we confess that the church is holy. We confess the church is holy because we belong to a holy God. Paul actually says you're being built into a holy temple to our God. Again, a group of imperfect people gathered 
belonging to God. So we are holy in the sense that we are now set apart. It's now different for us because we've become followers of Jesus Christ and he's done his work of salvation and grace inside of us and the Holy Spirit is at work within us and we are now on this trajectory toward a holy God. The church has always understood that we are in fact a spiritual hospital. This is actually language that some of the early church fathers would use as early as 300 and 400 A.D., When the church gathers, this is a spiritual hospital, a place where sinners find forgiveness and power for a brand new life. We are holy because of what is happening to us, because of the God to whom we belong. Don't walk into a church building or into a Bible study or into a conversation with any other Christian and expect them to be perfect. Expect them to be on the same path that you are, being built into the church of Jesus Christ. The church is holy because of who we belong to, because of what God is doing inside of us. So we also confess that the church is universal. When we spoke the phrase together in the Apostles' Creed, it says we believe in the holy Catholic church. The word Catholic, small c Catholic, actually means broad or everywhere or universal. When we use that word, we're not meaning the Roman Catholic Church as we would understand it with the Pope and the Vatican in Rome. That's not what this means. Catholic just means it's everywhere. So we believe the church is universal. The Church of Jesus Christ, it turns out, translates incredibly well. If you've been with us Uh, For any length of time, you know that one of the things that we do here is we bring missionaries up in front of the congregation and we let them talk about what God is doing in other parts of the world and other parts of the state and the U.S. and all over the place. And part of the beauty of that is we get to watch them talk about what it means for the church to gather in Turkey or Japan or wherever, wherever it may be. And it's a beautiful thing for us to see and learn and understand that the church of Jesus Christ is designed to translate everywhere. If the very core of what we believe is Jesus Christ and the good news about Jesus Christ, then we can take that everywhere we go so that they can know who Jesus is. As I thought about this, it dawned on me again. Maybe we need to make sure that you and I understand this sitting in in chairs like this in a nation like this. You and I are the children of others who decided that people in another language needed to know about Jesus Christ. The original church did not speak English. They did not read an English Bible. They spoke Aramaic and Greek and Latin and Celtic and African dialects. And some of them decided that we needed to tell even more people about Jesus Christ. And eventually it ends up in the English language. And eventually it ends up here. And you and I inherit what our spiritual brothers and sisters did hundreds of years ago. You see, the church translates really well because we're talking about Jesus. Because we're talking about Jesus. Whatever is different in the church of Jesus Christ this morning, where there is the confession of faith, what unites us is greater than anything that divides us. The church is universal. And then the church is apostolic. In fact, the Nicene Creed actually includes this language. 
Paul uses that kind of language in the passage that we read in Ephesians chapter 2. The Nicene Creed actually says we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. This belief is actually quite straightforward. It means that we believe the church is intended to preserve the truths that have been handed to us in Scripture. Jesus walks with the disciples and the apostles, and the apostles then begin to teach the early church and write the epistles of the New Testament, and they make sure that the rest of the New Testament knows, take these things that we learn from Jesus, and this is what you need to teach to the next generation. So you and I inherit that. And when we call the church apostolic, what we mean is there's supposed to be this unbroken chain of the communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ, from Jesus and the apostles to you and me. And that means, friends, and we need to hear this from time to time, that whenever a church, a denomination, or a local church deviates too far from these core teachings, we no longer have the church. That's important. Just because some place, some building, some organization has the word church in it doesn't mean it's always the church of Jesus Christ. We believe in the apostolic succession. We believe in the teaching of the cores of the truth of the gospel. And where that is, we have the church. In the book of Acts chapter 2, we touched on this just a little bit last week because At the beginning of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples of Jesus Christ. They begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. The church is born by the power of the Spirit. Peter stands up and he preaches the very first sermon in the church and thousands are added to the church on that day. And at the end of that chapter, we're given a glimpse into what the church thought was important, how they did things. And here's part of that in Acts chapter 2 verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So we devote ourselves to these things still. It's why we still do potlucks. It's why we still gather together over coffee and dinner, because we break bread together as followers of Jesus Christ. And we devote ourselves to the teachings of the apostles. We open God's word and we listen to what it has to say, for there we have the church. So we believe in the church, we confess, and then we say we believe in the fellowship of the saints or the communion of the saints. So the church is filled with the people of God who have come together to worship and follow Jesus, who have come together to grow in our discipleship and the love of Christ amongst us, and who leave this place still as the church of Jesus Christ to bear witness to his kingdom everywhere we go. One of the most common descriptions of the church in the New Testament is the family of God. All kinds of imagery used by Jesus sometimes and then especially by the apostles in the letters that they write, this imagery of being built into the family of God. You see, when we become followers of Jesus Christ, we're handed a spiritual family. Every one of us, Scripture says, have been, have been given the right. If we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we've been given the right to become children of God. That makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. That makes some of us spiritual mothers and fathers. That makes some of us spiritual grandmothers and grandfathers. But we've been given a spiritual family. So this is not a disconnected 
disparate group of people who have gathered together. We are the family of God. And when we confess this, we say that it is important that we do this together, actually physically gathering together as the body of Christ is critical for us individually, for each other. And guys, and I believe firmly that it is more and more important for our neighbors to see us gather together as the church of Jesus Christ. Our neighborhood, our community, our city needs to know that we're together this morning worshiping Jesus Christ. It's part of our witness to this world. I'm going to show you a video. Now, count yourself lucky because I know this, this happens roughly once a decade. But I ran into this the other day, and let me set it up for you just very quickly. It's, it's done by a Christian comedian. Um, it's satire, okay? It's satire. He's not advertising anything. It's satire. And sat, good satire makes you want to laugh and cry at the same time. And that's what happened to me when I first kind of ran across this video. What's most important about this video for you and me this morning is the very last line of it. So let's go ahead and watch it, and let's just pay attention to that last line as well. Tired of having to wake up, get dressed, and drive across town just to attend your favorite service? Introducing Virtual Reality Church. Start by choosing a church building that meets your needs. Tired of the stress of having to choose a Sunday morning outfit? Never make a fashion mistake again because Virtual Reality Church will style you based on your denomination. Not a people person? Select the introvert experience to completely eliminate the welcome team, meet and greet time, connect cards, and that awkward hold hands with the person next to you thing we still do. Next, personalize your morning by choosing the worship experience that you want. Feeling a touch of white guilt? Add a minority worship leader. Custom options even let you tailor the skinniness of your worship leader's jeans. Finally, no more having to endure songs that you don't like. With Virtual Reality Church, you're in charge. For the sermon, choose the amount of conviction you'd like and we'll select a pastor for you. We'll even let you tailor your sermon topics so you'll never have to attend a Vision Sunday or a sermon series on giving. And never worry again about dozing off during the sermon. With Virtual Reality Church, you can sleep as long as you want. Kids being bad in nursery? Who cares? Worried about missing a football game? Enter your favorite team and we'll provide notifications when the game is starting. Never miss a kickoff again. Want to go for for prayer? Well, if you selected a Pentecostal service, always stand in front of a mattress. Even connect your social media accounts and we'll post for you. Get credit for being super spiritual all from the comfort of your couch. Finally, an option for people asking the question, how can I make Sunday morning even more about me? Virtual Reality Church, the future of church attendance. How can I make Sunday morning even more about me? Part of what's interesting about this is this, is, this video is a couple weeks old. About two months ago, a mega church on the West Coast actually launched their virtual reality church service app. And you can open up their app and you can be part of the foyer. You can talk to as few or as many. I would select the introvert experience, right? You say, hey, I see you over there. Great. Have a nice day. Um, we'll see you later. How can I make the church even more about me? The more... We do this kind of thing inside of our culture. We're very individualistic. We're very separated. We're very disconnected. And we need to understand that when we confess things like the church of Jesus Christ, we're looking at something different. We're gathered together as the family of God to worship God. 
It's important that we do this together. A generation and a half ago, C.S. Lewis talked about the same kind of thing. In the beginning to his book, Mere Christianity, he's talking about what he means by mere Christianity. He means the basic understanding of faith in Jesus Christ. But he says, now, my goal is, is to try to pull people into that sort of broad definition of I now have become a Christian, put my faith in Jesus Christ. But he wants to say, it's not that that counts. You have to actually walk from there into a local church. And that's where things begin to make a difference. Here's how he puts it at the beginning of his book, Mere Christianity. He says this. Mere Christianity is like a hall out of which doors open into several rooms. If I can bring anyone into that hall, I've done what I attempted. But it is in the rooms, the local churches, not the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. The hall is a place to wait in, a place from which to try the various doors, not a place to live in. In plain language, the question should never be, do I like this kind of service? But are these doctrines true? Is holiness here? I believe in the church. I believe in the church. Here's part of the language that the Apostle Paul uses. When he writes to the Corinthians in chapter 12, he speaks of the body of Christ and our connectedness to each other in the Spirit of God. He says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Notice the same thing Paul likes saying. And all were made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member but of many. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We believe in the church. We believe in the communion, the fellowship of the saints as we gather together to worship Christ. These kinds of confessions that we are making this morning in the creed, that we believe in the church and the fellowship of the saints, these kinds of things are critical to the practicality of our faith. It's how I learn how to actually live it out. It's what I do with my time. It's what I do with my weekends. It's what I do in other times of the week. It's important to our practicality. It's important to how we live it out with other people close to me. So the local church, what happens here is an expression of this universal church, the one church that belongs to Jesus Christ. We express it here and we belong to the universal church. My couch is not an expression of the universal church. My TV is not an expression of the universal church. My YouTube account or virtual reality headset, none of them are expressions of the universal church, but the local church is. So when we confess these things, we're learning to do things like we commit to each other, We commit to attendance. We commit to giving of ourselves, our finances, the gifts that God has given us. We believe in this. We're going to give to it. We're going to attend it. We commit to engaging with the church, the gifts that God has given us. What can God do with those inside of the body of Christ and through the body of Christ to the rest of the world, right? And we commit to praying for and supporting each other. 
You can't do that over a virtual reality headset, right? So this is what we believe in, and it makes a difference for us. So these things, I think we have a sense that they are intensely practical for us. But the next few phrases that finish the creed that we confessed this morning, these are also incredibly important to the practice of my faith. See, when I grab the power of these truths, when I figure out what this means, what God has given me, where I am headed because I am a child of God, when I grasp these truths, it can lead me into a life that I could never make on my own. Does that make sense? I can never make this life. I can never accomplish these things. But God has done it for me, so now my life changes, right? So we confess that we believe in the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body. Our sin, every one of us individually, my sin, has broken relationship with God. So what God does is He initiates a plan of the forgiveness for our sins and he brings us into relationship with himself. This is beautiful, guys. I need it. I cannot accomplish it. God wants it done, so he makes it possible. He initiates the plan. So guys, every now and then, this kind of reality in our faith with Jesus Christ just kind of needs to humble us. It needs to blow us away just a little bit. The forgiveness of our sins is an incredible thing. Phil does not deserve the forgiveness of his sins from a holy and righteous God. But God offers it. I can't do it myself, so God does it. It is a gift that is given freely to whosoever will, but it cost God dearly. He paid the price so that you and I may freely be given the forgiveness of our sins in this relationship with God that's possible because of Him. So God offers this forgiveness of sins to anyone who would believe in Jesus Christ, to anyone who would put their trust in Him. A little bit earlier on in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. In Him we have redemption through His blood. That's what it cost Him the cross of Christ. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, of our sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. God lavished His forgiveness on you and on me. So the forgiveness of our sins restores that relationship with God. And part of what that does is it gives us then the sure hope of the resurrection of our bodies for eternity with God. So we believe in the forgiveness of sins, which means then we believe in the resurrection of the body. So Scripture tells us this will happen, right? That at some point we will actually be physically resurrected in brand new bodies that then can bear the weight of being before God for all of eternity. You see, this physical body can barely bear the weight of this life. So this physical, broken, mortal, sinful body cannot bear the weight of eternal glory itself. So God has to remake us. So we believe in the physical resurrection of 
these broken bodies to be with God for all of eternity. It's hard sometimes to imagine exactly what that means or to pin down the details. But when the Apostle Paul talks about it, and he does so in 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about it, he uses this analogy. And the analogy is the difference between a seed and a tree. A seed has a certain kind of life in it. But in order for that seed to become a tree, it falls into the ground and it dies, and then it becomes something different. And he's going to say that's what it's like, that these seeds at one point are going to fall into the ground and die. But because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, they're going to come to life again in a new kind of form. Here's how he puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? With what kinds of bodies do they come? And Paul says, you foolish person, it's different, right? What you sow, what you throw into the ground, does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. A little later he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, this kind of flesh and blood, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So God is going to change us. We belong to Jesus Christ, and this physical resurrection of the body belongs to us. It's part of our hope. So that then in that resurrected body, we are with God for eternity and glory. So the promise of our resurrection to be with God is not possible without the forgiveness of our sins. And that is made possible by the work of Jesus Christ. It is the plan of the Heavenly Father, and we are drawn into it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we confess with this creed over and over again, I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. He, the triune God, is always at work inside of his people. So we're given this hope of resurrection to life everlasting. And we believe in the life everlasting. Amen. We remind ourselves of this from time to time. Every human being is an eternal soul precious to God. Every human being who has ever lived is still in existence. We are made, every one of us, in the image of God. We are precious to Him. And we have this immortal soul. So you see, part of the promise of life with God now is life with Him for all of eternity. Part of the promise of life with God now is that we've been allowed to grab onto the rope that's going to take us from one shore to the next into eternity itself, right? This moment of, of everlasting life with God, there's a phrase that the early church pastors and leaders, they used to use a lot. We don't use very often anymore so it feels a little antiquated, but it's a beautiful phrase, so I'm going to give it to you anyway. It's what the church used to call the beatific vision. Beatific in the sense of our beatitude. It is our ultimate beatitude is to be face-to-face with God. It is our ultimate blessing is to be face-to-face with our Savior Jesus Christ and in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Should Christ tarry, 
and the child of God dies in this life, we close our eyes in this world and we open our eyes in the next. We breathe out one last time in this life and we breathe in in the next. We believe in life everlasting, what God has promised and given his children. You see, guys, the human being was literally made to be in eternal relationship with our Creator. It's how God created us. It is the only place every human soul will ever find its final ultimate meaning and purpose and drive is in relationship with the God who made us. One of the early church pastors and and fathers was Augustine, an African. And he spent his young life searching for meaning everywhere he possibly could in philosophy, in politics, in women, in drink. And then he has this very powerful moment of conversion. And later in life, he writes this book called The Confessions. And he reflects on how God was at work bringing him to himself through this entire process. So this sharp young man who is searching for life in every possible place finally finds Jesus Christ later in life. He starts his book just in the very first few sentences of the confessions. He says this, and he's speaking to God. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. You made us for you, and this thing is restless. This thing is restless until I find my rest in you. So eternal life means life with God. And it's the kind of life we can begin living here and now. We can taste of that life. We can learn how to live in that life. We really can because of the gift of Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit, the testimony of the people of God. We know that in this life we really can find a peace that passes all understanding, a contentment in whatever situation I find myself in, a joy no matter what that is deeper and stronger than whatever is in my life. We're beginning to taste of life everlasting. Christ himself actually puts it this way in John Chapter 10, verse 10, he said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Christ grants us life abundant and life eternal. And then, guys, the promise of eternal life with God our Father is just quite simply beyond our ability to imagine. What will be fixed? What will be changed? What will be cleared away? What will be done away with? What will burn up in the fire like chaff and be gone forever? And what now will be made possible as we are able to stand face to face with our God? Part of that story is revealed to us. In Revelation chapter 21, the book that deals with the end of the story, so to speak, the beginning of new eternity. Here's part of how that goes in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, the throne of God, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. The beatific vision. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We believe in the church of Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the saints. We believe in the kind of forgiveness that only God gives. We believe in the promise of our resurrected bodies to be with Him forever, and we believe in the eternal life given to us by God. Amen. Let's pray.